Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. Everybody. I want to welcome Mike Mobison to the show. Mike is a strategic investor. He is an author. He is a adjunct professor at Columbia University. And on the side, he does incredible work with lacrosse analytics. Mike, welcome to the Philosophy podcast. Really fired up to have you on here and talk some lacrosse analytics with you. How you doing? I'm doing great, Jamie. Awesome to be with you. Yeah, I'm really glad uh, a couple mutual friends of ours introduced us years back. And um, one of our mutual friends um, is uh, my, my cousin, Joe Dowling. And he says, you get more done in a day than just about anybody he knows. So coming from a guy like that, um, sounds like uh, this is like just, a, you got a lot of things on your plate today, but thanks for giving us some time on the podcast. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. So real quick, Mike, do you mind giving us a little, uh, give, the, give the audience a little bit of your background, where you grew up, how you got into all this stuff, and what you're up to? Yeah, so I grew up in Ithaca, New York. So as you know, a uh, hotbed of lacrosse, grew up uh, in the shadows of Cornell and, and was very uh, enamored with those uh, late 1970s Cornell Richie Moran teams. So my, my heroes were, you know, Mike French and Eamon McEnany. Uh, I grew up playing soccer, hockey, and lacrosse. I don't, I don't think I knew any kids that played baseball <laughs> in my whole life growing up. Um, then I went off to prep school, and then I played college at George, uh, lacrosse at Georgetown. Georgetown at the time was pre-Coach Urich, was uh, not a strong program, but, you know, had a pretty good career and lots of good friends. And I uh, continued to play, you know, after school and some masters lacrosse and so forth. Um, as you mentioned, my day job has really been in finance for the last 30 years as an analyst and a strategist. And, um, you know, over the years, I just got much more interested in this, in the topics about uh, analytics and how do we think about things. And, and specifically for the lacrosse thing, there were sort of three big catalysts for me to get, get involved with this. The first was reading Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball. And, you know, I got to say that and I was kind of an anti-baseball guy. Not only was I not into it, I was kind of anti-baseball, but I thought that book was fascinating and how those guys broke down the skills of various players and actually assembled teams that were very effective and, and for professional sports on the cheap. Um, right after that, there was a book that came out called Basketball on Paper by a guy named Dean Oliver. And you have no reason to have ever heard of this guy, but, but Oliver is like a really, really good basketball analytics guy. And that was for me like the bell going off saying like, you know, it turns out that in many fundamental ways, how we think about lacrosse is very similar to how we think about basketball, right? It's possession, essentially a possession and possession efficiency. There are some important differences, but, but there are a lot of core similarities. And then finally, just looking at college lacrosse, I think it was about 10 years ago that box scores became widely available. So really before that, it was catch, catch, catch as you can in terms of, in terms of data. But about 10 years ago, you know, you could now look at every single team and look at all their box scores and start to do some interesting work. So, so sort of a combination of all those things got me going on this. And then the other thing just has always fueled this is over the years, I've been really lucky to get to know um, executives in, in, major, in professional sports. So Major League Baseball guys and NBA guys and NFL guys. And it's fascinating to see um, 
how different sports are uh, uh, long different distances in terms of understanding how they apply analytics. So it's been sort of a really fun journey. And, uh, you know, to me, and I think, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations about this. I think lacrosse is a, is a sport that um, lends itself to some of this type of analysis. And I think we're probably pretty early days and really doing um, interesting work. So there's a lot of, I think, a lot of upside to people that pay attention to this. Yeah. Uh, that complements many of the stuff, uh, many of the things that they're probably already doing. Before we get into the lacrosse, what, where, how do you, uh, you know, MLB, NBA, NFL, NHL, you know, is it pretty consistent from sport to sport as far as how much they've evolved or is it quite yeah. different from program to program? I think it's way different. So I think Major League Baseball is probably the furthest ahead and, and probably, you know, because they have discrete interactions, everything's been tracked for 100 years. And the sophistication of what those guys are doing now in Major League Baseball is mind-boggling. But what's also fascinating is even in the last 10 or 15 years, there have been some major changes in how, how, uh, and how they operate and, and driven by analytics. And a good example of that is the shift. So like where players are positioned on the field. And for, you know, basically 100 years, they did it one way and people realized we're not doing it as efficiently as we can. I think behind that is the NBA. Um, you know, one of the benefits NBA is five players instead of more players and discrete, again, discrete possessions, but super sophisticated in terms of being able to capture data and so forth. Um, and then I think the guys that are lagging are the NFL and the NHL. Um, NHL is really tricky just because, you know, five offensive forwards and a goalie, lots of speed, not a lot of distinct possessions, trickier to figure out. And the NFL is just, you know, 11 guys on each side, lots of movement. Um, and so I think those are inherently more difficult to do. But, yeah, I think there's a whole continuum. And, you know, lacrosse is probably somewhere, you know, between basketball and hockey, I would guess, in terms of our understanding of how to, how to go at it. And the other thing I'll just say, and I, I think that, um, Jamie, you're very much, uh, you appreciate this, is that I think that technology has come along really rapidly in the last 10, 15 years. So now we can do things with cameras and technology and, and monitoring players and so forth, and that, that really wasn't cost effective or possible probably 10, 15 years ago. So that's also been, I think, a major contributor. So, so that's, um, yeah, that's another dimension that, that I think makes this uh, really an interesting, super interesting time for this to be more relevant in lacrosse. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. So you have what you call the basic equation and some really interesting sort of big picture things to share about lacrosse analytics. And why don't you, if you don't mind, uh, fill us in on that. Yeah. So the basic equation, I mean, this, these things kind of sound silly to start this way, but you know, if you're trying to win lacrosse games or any, any sport, you're trying to score more goals than your opponent. And uh, it's the kind of, so it breaks down to that. Right. And so, um, just taking a step back, what I try to do is I gather the data for, for all Division I lacrosse programs, and then we just sort of aggregate them. And if you aggregate them, um, the, the basic equation, as you refer to it, is that on average, teams have 31.7 possessions, so called 32 possessions per game, and they convert 32.7% uh, of those possessions, so call it about a third of those possessions, into goals. So you take those numbers and multiply them, you get about a little over 10, 10.3 goals per game, right? So that's the basic equation. And so if you're as a, as a 
coach or you're trying to understand the game, what you want to do is beat your opponent in one or more dimensions of that equation, right? So you think about there aren't that many ways to do it, right? You either have more possessions than the other team, and we can talk about how to do that, or uh, much more likely and much more important and much more probably plausible is you have higher uh, efficiency, right? Which means you, you score at a higher rate than your opponents and you hold them, to, uh, you know, a lower rate. And so to me, that's, a, that's really a fundamental way to think about the game and uh, a cool uh, point of departure. And then a lot of the stuff that, you know, you and I have been talking about over the years kind of riffs off this, right? So how do you think about what, what con uh, contributes to good offensive or defensive efficiency? So one of the things is ground balls. And uh, give us a little bit of a rundown on, you know, I mean, forever coaches have said, let's win the ground ball battle. Were they right? They were absolutely right. And it's really funny because um, ground balls are, can, can be kind of a lunch pail thing, right? Like it doesn't always show up in, a, in you know, goals and, and assists or flashy plays. But it turns out that picking up ground balls is something that if you're a really dedicated athlete and hardworking, that you can really contribute and make a big difference. So the stats I always like to trot out on this is if, if you're ground ball differential, so you have four, four or more ground balls in your opponent per game, those teams in, in college lacrosse win about 70% of the time. So if you play 15 games, you're going to be a 10-5 and five team, and you've got a, probably a pretty good shot at uh, some postseason play. And if your ground ball differential is m minus four or less, so the other team's getting four more than you, the winning percentage is below 30%. And those are teams that are going to be perennially um, in the basement in terms of the standing. So this is one of those things that, you know, Jamie, you and I are going for a contested ground ball. You know, it, it may not seem that important who gets it, but uh, you add those things up over time. And that plus four is really a, a plus four minus four is really a big deal. So that's one that I think all of us can relate to. It's very easy to understand. And it just demonstrates that it's not a high profile statistic in terms of day-to-day uh, -day playing, but really uh, amazingly adds up to, to being important. Well, those 50-50 ground balls add up because it's also one that you get and they don't. They don't, exactly. And that even adds up even more. And I guess you can look at it as it's worth about a third of a goal. Exactly. Exactly. So that's another way to think about it. And, you know, so here I am and, and leaving, even leaving aside face off. So that's important, but you know, here I am or just a regular Joe and I pick up three or four ground balls. And like you said, they're contested, especially um, I've contributed a goal to my team, right? Even if I've not scored anything and uh, that's really important. And sometimes it gets overlooked. I think those contributions get overlooked. So that's, that's a super interesting, fun, and I think motivating, candidly, because it shows that you can contribute to your team in lots of ways that may not show up in, in high-profile statistics. So the coaches that have been saying win the ground ball battle all this time were right. They were right. <laughs> we're, uh, and our, our gut was, was correct. Sometimes, sometimes what we think isn't so correct. Let's talk a little bit about face-offs because everyone, you know, um, the face-off rules are constantly being debated. And the value of, like, shit, everybody, you know – why is it that we're spending 99.9% .9 of our time on everything, and yet, you know, this face-off, this one little part of the game seems to have such a major impact? What, what are the realities of the impact of, of the face-off game? On yeah, I think this is, you know, and by the way, I, I should say one thing is um, just 
to step back for a moment is that most of us learn about the game and, and I include myself in this camp by your own experience, right? So you, you and I have played the game, you have a sense of how it was played. There were things you were good at, not as good at and so forth. So I think a lot of what we learn about the game or our views of the game are either th through our own experience or some, you know, sort of like the, the wisdom that's handed down over the generations. And I think the face-offs are one area that I wouldn't say that it defies that, but it's really interesting. So the first comment just to make on this, that it turns out if you do a correlation of face-off percentage and winning percentage, it's among the lowest correlations of any of the statistics that we see. So let me say that again. And that means in plain words, you know, teams that win lots of face-off as a percentage don't necessarily win lots of games. And teams that, you know, now on balance, it's better to win more than less to state the obvious, but it's actually one of the lowest correlation statistics, right? Now, that's offset to a large degree by efficiency. So if you have really high efficiency, um, you can offset, you know, being sort of mediocre. So I always like to say on face-offs, obviously being north of 50% is really good. But if you're even if you're in the 40s, high 40s, that's not going to be a deal breaker. And you've actually seen teams make it to the final four in the NCAA tournament that are below 50% just because they're super efficient teams. The second thing is interesting is streaks in faceoffs. And I actually try to do this is something I, I've not seen anybody do massively. I did a little bit of work on this, which is to say something like this. Um, you if you just flip a fair coin, a 50-50 coin, um, just over a random series, you expect certain streaks of heads or streaks of tails. And in fact, it turns out those streaks of heads or tails are actually greater than what people anticipate or what they think their intuitions are. So it turns out that I think a lot of the streaks in quotation marks you see in face-offs are actually statistically consistent with just one guy being a little bit better than the other guy, which is interesting. So even though it, it feels like a momentum shifter, and it is in some ways a momentum shifter, it seems like it's completely consistent with what we know um, statistically. The third thing I'll say on face-offs, and I'm not sure I understand it, maybe you have an explanation for this, is that one of the things we measure is sort of the variance in face-offs. In other words, obviously, in the aggregate, all face-offs will be 50-50, right? But some teams win at a higher percentage and some teams win at a lower percentage. But one of the things we do is measure the variance, which is, you know, the difference between the very best teams and the very worst teams. And that actually in recent years has gone up. And that's in part because we have some of these guys who are just um, in college across amazing faceoff guys, right? And, uh, you know, probably Trevor Baptiste at Denver is one of our, you know, maybe the greatest faceoff college faceoff guy ever. But, you know, you know, Albany, amazing faceoff guy, real strong guy at Yale. And uh, that's, that's also an interesting phenomenon. So I don't know if that's going to be something that will be competed away or just a sort of statistical fluke, but that's also super interesting to me. So, so again, my sort of bottom line on face-offs, super important, just to state the opposite. I don't want to say they're not important, but I think that people think, think of them as more important than they may be, um, and, and, play, and, and, and things like efficiency are probably more important. Now, my, my guess is that... If you're just awful at face-offs, you might be in trouble. That's right. That's right. So it's more like, hey, you don't have to be great. And even if you're, you know, a little under 50%, somewhere in the 40s, you know, you can compete with really good efficiencies. But, you know, it's going to be hard to, it's going to be hard to, you know, lose 20 face-offs and win. That's right. 10 and still be able to. And I'll say, Jamie, it turns out that I think if you look at this carefully, I think the teams that are really bad at face-off percentage, very rarely any good. But yeah. there are teams that are really good at face-off percentage that are bad teams. 
So right. it's almost like it kind of goes that way, right? In other words, so, so if you want to be, obviously, if you want to be a super competitive team and play postseason lacrosse, you're going to want to be, like you said, proficient. At least competitive. So, yeah, at least competitive in the 50%-ish range and certainly better, higher is better. Um, and if you're in the 30s, it's going to be really difficult. But the flip side is there, are, there have been teams historically that have been in the high 50s, low 60s that have been really bad teams, and that's because their efficiency is really bad. I've got a theory on the variance. So the rules changed with face-offs. And the face-off, I, I think that the NCAA committee did a pretty good job of figuring out a way to eliminate cheating. Um, it used to be that, you know, the way that you were able to line up, the way that you were able to uh, get your, you know, crowd the ball more with the way you lined up, your, your stick would be tilted a little bit. It gave the um, it gave the advantage to the underdog in the faceoff because they could they could line up and, and and make it so that it wasn't a fair face. And what's happening now is that the way that they line the faceoff guys up to begin with, you put the ball down after they're lined up. It, there's a you know three fouls, three three infractions, and it's a thirty second penalty. Um, all of a sudden means that there's more at stake and it's been a very, very fair face-off and so that the best guys can actually dominate most of the time over the years. The best guys would be like, but he's cheating. He's crowding the ball. He's jumping. He's doing all these things that are now not allowed, um, grabbing the ball. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people were grabbing sticks, grabbing the ball, doing all these things that was making it harder to be a dominant face-off guy. So I love that. That makes and that makes a lot of sense. So that 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 would be completely consistent. So the best guys were able to shine, whereas before, because of the rules, those guys were not their 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 skills were to some degree diminished or hidden, right, by the rules. Yeah, love that. Interesting stuff. Um, another thing you talk a lot about and you've studied is the impact of Canadians and 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 you know when I got to Denver. I, one of the first things I started doing was recruiting Canadians, and uh, Matt Brown was my first Canadian. He's the offensive coordinator at DU now. We had a ton of them. And, um, you know, I've, I've kind of endorsed the, the way that they play, but, but statistically, what is it about Canadians that makes a difference? You know, Jamie, I think this is the one thing that blew me away more than anything else. And, um, you know, it's like if you went to an NBA team and said, we've got guys that are in this one category of efficiently vastly better than the rest of the population, you know, they would be doing backflips. Uh, and and I, I think some people know this, but it, it, it's just the, the numbers are amazing. So here it is. Um, one of the most important elements of, of efficiency, offensive efficiency, is shooting percentage. It's very obvious, right, which is what percent of your shots go in, right? Yeah. And um, the, one of the things that we found very consistently is that Canadians, and I think you, know, you can speak a little bit about why all this is, part of it's the training and, and the experience and how they're touching the ball and so forth, but Canadians for the last five years, let's give the average, have shot at 34.2%. That means that 34% of their shots are goals. The average American, or I should say maybe non-Canadian, but they're almost all Americans, shoots it at 28%. Right, so that's a six percentage points difference, which turns out to be about 30 goals over a, an average season of, five, you know, call it roughly 500 shots. That's a huge, huge um, difference in terms of efficiency. And, uh, you know, it turned out, you know, I, I mentioned uh, growing up in Ithaca and one of my heroes early on was Mike French. 
And it turned out, if you looked at a lot of the great goal scorers in the history of college across, um, Canadians are way, way overrepresented relative to the percent of the population. So I just think that uh, finding guys that are, that are really efficient in this regard um, is, is a huge potential advantage. And uh, I still think to some degree underlooked. And, and I think, you know, you look at a lot of it still, even these days, you see a lot of these Canadian guys. Uh, Yale had a kid that was really efficient, a Canadian kid. Uh, almost every team now that comes along, you see these guys that are really efficient uh, goal scorers. So that to me is a, like that jumped off the page. And uh, there are some American guys that are super efficient as well. But I, to me, one of the things that would be an obvious um, lesson is to figure out exactly how these guys are training, what experiences are going through, and to see to the degree to which you can implement those things as an American, if you're an American kid, and uh, improve your efficiency. Because you're going to be a lot, a lot more valuable to your team if you're a more efficient offensive player. Yeah, but they can't go left. They can't go left-handed. <laughs> yeah so that's you know those are interesting things and you know and and and, uh, and and again this is something you know much more about than i do um they can't switch hands very well but the flip side is uh they're amazing on ground balls uh so some guys may not want to carry they may be guys that are better at finishing than than carrying the ball and, and and dodging but uh you know that's part of that's part of an offense you can put together combinations of guys that can do both things you know so zach greer it was had an amazing career at duke because mostly because he had Donowski, right? So it was right. the combination of those, and, and Donowski had an amazing career in part because of that career, right? So it's a, it's a combination of those two guys. Um, yeah, so I, I would definitely think that's true. But that's the, that's the other thing that we have another conversation about the, the importance of switching hands. But uh, but even without switching hands, these guys can be incredible. And as you, as you know, there are some of the some of the greatest players no, in the history of this game, or guys that never almost never switched their hands. So, no, so it's not, it's not clear that that's the key thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I think you need a few guys that can uh, split to either hand. You know, you need an X guy. It's nice yep. to have some middies that can dodge down uh, their weak hand alley and shoot the ball on the run. But for the most part, you know, the stats will tell you not first and foremost. And we look, we talked about Jesse McNulty, who does a lot of work with the Atlanta Blaze, and the stats he's put together as far as shooting percentages when your stick is to the middle uh, is much higher than when you're taking a shot with your stick to the outside. And the Canadians grow up only playing on their side. And their, their philosophy is, well, you can only play on one side at a time anyway. Why not play on your strong side that gets your stick to the middle where you have all the angle? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. The Canadians rarely take bad shots because they don't take shots without angle. They need to get to the middle. Their whole life they're learning how to get to the middle. In fact, their, their manhood is judged or questioned by did they cut the middle? <laughs> I mean, that's what it's right. all about is getting into the middle because that's where the rough stuff is. A good friend of mine, uh, the late, great Dave Huntley, used to talk about Everything on the perimeter is all noise. What, what, what happens is, is when you get to the middle. So many people think box lacrosse, it's the boards and glass that, you know, that the confined area that, that makes the game. And, and, and definitely from a reps perspective and stuff, that, that's true. Um, maybe not more than five on five versus 10 on 10. That helps your reps also. But I think it's the goal size in the end that makes you get close and get to the middle. Uh, and that's the whole reason why these guys, these guys are just generally better shooters. Exactly. And by the way, it, you know, just to your point, this also, we've been talking mostly about offense, but also gives you a lot of indications about or clues about how to be effect, effective on defense, right? Which is, as like sort of that Huntley line, right? The perimeter is sort of like noise is, is 
it, it often, uh, it, you know, if you're getting, if you're getting offensive player, if you as a defensive player, you're getting offensive players to be out there and doing in the perimeter where they may feel more comfortable or actually they may think they're being efficient. Uh, it's a huge advantage too, right? So that, that's another, you can almost flip that coin and say, how, how do we think about defense as well? So I agree with all that. And that's super interesting. And these are all things we want to make explicit, right? We want people to understand these things and uh, as a player to understand how you can, you can, um, you, you can use this sort of mindset to make yourself more efficient, more effective. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. What about goaltending? Um, you, you talk a lot about that from the perspective of communication, stopping the ball, clearing. What are your thoughts on goaltending as it relates to what these topics? Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, um, my, my take on this and part of this, by the way, I should mention that, you know, in college I played mostly attack and in, in masters, I played some more mid, I played midfield as well, which is really bad because <laughs> I had to play defense. And, uh, <clears throat> one of my <clears throat> really clear observations was, I played with a couple of goalies who were just amazing, amazing communicators as goalies. And I got to tell you that it made me not only feel like more confident in what I was doing, more aware of what I was doing and more in the right position of what I was doing, but uh, yeah, just more confidence as a player. So, so to me, um, I think usually when you think about goalies, you think about how they stop the ball and clearly that's important. Um, I'm, I'm not sure there's as much differentiation in goalies' abilities to stop the balls as people might think. I think a lot of the great goalies are guys that communicate really effectively. So they're the generals back there, and they're making sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then maybe the, the piece of uh, goaltending that I think gets under, underestimated a little bit is, is clearing. And, um, you know, you want to be really effective in clearing. And, and by the way, even looking at the college lacrosse statistics, one of the things that always surprises surprising me to some degree is that you know, some teams seem to give up a number of possessions by being sloppy at clearing. And, um, and I actually have talked to a number of coaches, and sometimes they'll say, you know, we're, we're not as good because we have a couple weak links, whether they're defensive players or, or specifically goalies. So to me, that's another thing is you want your goalie to be someone who's super good at um, it, that managing the clear, clearing effectively, throwing good outlet passes, throwing appropriate outlet passes when, those are, when that's the case. And um, yeah, so I think that's, it's not that, not that stopping the ball is not important. And the other thing is interesting is if you look at save percentages for goalies and, and you know, this is something you and I were talking about just the other day a little bit, a, a part of it is the guys with the high save percentages play for really good defensive team schemes, right? So the yeah. defense is really good. And, and when defense schemes are good, they, the teams are going to take shots, but they're not taking great shots. And if they're not taking great shots, the goalie can see it and he can stop it. Right. So, so part of it is, the guys have no you know, ability to move his hands and feet and so forth. But part of it is if the guy's taking, you know, some, some suboptimal shots, you're going to have a much higher probability of stopping it. Right. So, so that's another part of it is sort of this whole package of what we're looking for, for goaltenders. And, and again, I think probably the thing that gets least play that, that is important is probably clearing. Is what is the, so the, the value of a possession is roughly a third of a goal. Yep. So if you turn it over on the clear, does that, does that mean you've given up a third plus a third? Yeah. So, I mean, if you figure, you know, exactly, I don't know what the exact number is, but yeah, well, I think I did wrote, I figured it out. Yeah. It's about point three. It's about point three goals, right? Because you have some clearing percentage and then you have, then you get into the offensive zone. So yeah, exactly. 
and again, those things add up, you know. Uh, and so you say three or four failed clears in a game is a goal, right? And if you're down to a one-goal game or a close game, that's going to make a big difference. So it goes back to the same thing we were talking about ground balls. It's little things add up. And, uh, you know, you have a failed clear in the second quarter and everybody forgets about it. But, again, these things tend to accumulate over time. So that's a really important thing. It's an important message as, as, a, as a player as well is that possessions are really important. You don't want to be overly risk of, you know, you, don't, you want to do things that are appropriate. You don't want to be overly risk averse. But, but, but possessions are important. You don't want to do stupid things with the ball. So give us some uh, thoughts on, you know, how do coaches, uh, you know, take this information and start to try to use analytics. Now we, we're going to have college coaches that are listening to this. We're going to have high school coaches that are going to listen to this. And we're just going to have some parents that are just interested, but now how do you sort of begin to take this stuff? Yeah. And, and Jamie, I'm, you know, I'm, I, you know, a lot more about this than I do, but I'll just give a couple some I'll share a couple thoughts on this I mean the first thing I'll just say is that you know I, I do think that having statistics are important and I'll just mention one story I, I met with a coach of a division one team and and I said you know and I was going to go through my presentation I said before we do that just you know kind of trying to tell me like what you look at and what you keep track of and so forth and you know he was very forthcoming talked about their high level objectives which were which were super reasonable by the way and if you and if you sort of if they did what they those high level objectives were they would certainly win a lot of games but then he talked about their more detailed statistics and i just basically pulled out a pad and and, and just worked out the math and it turns out that the, the the detailed statistics didn't add up to the high level objectives right so in other words they weren't the components didn't add up to the aggregates and that's something you really want to make sure that you're doing so it's sort of this holistic view right um the other thing I'll just say, and I think you and I share this view, is that I, I do think coaches ultimately are are very similar to teachers. And, and you know, I teach uh, in a formal role at a university, but, um, you know, it is in part of being a great teacher, I think, is having a passion for and really understanding your topic. And uh, as a consequence, I think this st statistical thinking fits into that very much, is that if you really understand what you're doing, you have to be able to go from really high level down to the details and back to the high level. Now, the difference between a teacher and, and a coach is a teacher, you know, I, I, I teach my students how to do certain things, and then they go off in the world and they do them. Uh, as a coach, you're teaching your student, your, your players how to do things, and then you're actually overseeing them as they're doing it. So there's a, there is a difference, and that allows you to give, give some uh, feedback on, on the spot. Um, so to me, the, the reason that I, we talked about the basic equation of possessions and possession efficiency and the number of goals you score is just basically to say, like, let's understand what works, and let's prioritize our energy toward what allows us to ultimately win. And this is something you and I have talked a lot about, right, which is there's a really nice literature on this so-called deliberate practice, right? So how do you practice in a very mindful and deliberate way to get better at what you're supposed to be doing? And there are sort of key components to that. One is to make sure that you're practicing what, what we would call sort of subroutines of game situations, right? So you want to practice what are effectively game situations and not practice things that are not game situations, right? So there are a lot of drills that coaches do especially at the lower level, youth level, that have nothing to do with actually what happens in a game. And that's not very helpful, right? And the degree to which you put people into full speed game type situations, that's really helpful. The second thing is really high quality, timely feedback. And Jamie, I know that's something you're amazing at, which is giving people feedback on what they're doing well and what they can improve on 
on a really timely basis and on a high quality basis. And that allows people to understand directly what's good and what is what can be improved. And that's really important to coaching, I think. And then finally is, you know, the, uh, this is going to sound a little higher level, but, you know, how do you balance rest? How do you balance engagement, right? You don't want to overrun your players. You, wanna, you don't want to underrun them. You want to keep them engaged and excited about what they're doing. And then two just kind of final points is, you know, put, put your players in situations to succeed. Obviously, you, you mentioned a little bit of, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Canadians, but, you know, know your personnel and what guys are good at and what they're not good at. Um, and two final things I'll say for coaches, especially oh, high school and college coaches, is, which is, you know, study those guys who are successful. I was talking to the, a buddy of mine, the general manager of, a, of an NBA team, and he was saying, like, you know, the first thing we thought about was, like, who's good at this? You know, you say like, hey, you know, we're not clearing as effectively as we should be. Like, who's good at clearing, you know? Our, our extra man offense is not clicking the way you'd like, you know, like who's good at this, right? And just study what's good and figure out like, how do we get more effective at what, what you know, can we mimic what other people are doing, replicate what they're doing to be better at it? And then there's a really, a, you know, sort of a final, final thing, which is, uh, which I think is probably a good mantra just for life, not just for sports, but focus a lot on process, not on outcome. I always loved the fact that um, John Wooden, the legendary basketball coach at UCLA, never, ever talked about winning, ever. He just said, like, if we do what we know we're supposed to do and we execute at the highest level we possibly can, we've done everything we can in our power to succeed. Now, he goes, I suspect if we do all those things well, you'll be happy with what shows up on the scoreboard. But there's really nothing else we can do besides our very best and maximize our potential. So, so to me, it's a, it's a focus on process. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and if there are things that are shown to work over time, um, you should do those kinds of things, right? Um, the last thing, I'll, the very, very last thing I'll say is I do think that lacrosse, like a lot of other sports, tends to have a lot of tradition and to some degree conservatism in the coaching ranks. Uh, you do what your coach taught you to do and you tell your kids to do what you, you know, so forth. And it's always really refreshing for people to take a look, take a look at what works that is not sort of conventional wisdom. And I know I was listening to the awesome conversation you had with Lars Tiffany at Virginia about, for example, things like pressure defense um, or there are examples like in, in hockey, like when do you pull the goalie if you're down? And there's, again, sort of conventional views on these things. And then there's sort of analytical views that are a little bit outside the mainstream. And I think that, you know, really thoughtful and progressive coaches um, are, are guys that are willing to try these things out. Um, now, it, you may be embarrassed if it doesn't work. And that could be that's the downside. It's sort of a social downside. But I think coaches should be really open minded to trying things that uh, that are that are demonstrated to analytically be useful. Uh, even if it may uh, make you look a little bit silly from time to time. Give us the um, example on the pull the goalie uh, as far as this, what the, what this, what the, what these, uh, the stats guys say. Yeah. So, you know, the traditional thing is you're in a hockey game. It's uh, you're down by a goal. It's getting toward the end of the game. You want to try to tie it up. And so you pull your goalie for an extra skater. And usually the rule of thumb is you do that around a minute, minute and a half, something like that. Right. Because obviously you're creating a lot of vulnerability having an empty net. Um, and it turns out this has been studied statistically and it, they're pulling their goalies way too late. They should be doing it with a lot more time on the clock. Now, you know, and, and it could be, some guys are saying it could be five minutes or more, which seems a little bit crazy, right? Now, but the fact is, efficiency. 
Yeah, because more so the fact is, you know, if you have your you have no goalie for five minutes, the other team's going to score, you know, at some reasonable probability. But the flip side is, it gives you a much much higher chance, albeit still low, but a much better chance of actually scoring yourself, right? So it's the analytically correct way to do things, um, which may not be intuitive. By the way, another one is, you know, we saw this in the Super Bowl earlier this year, right? So the Eagles had the ball. I think it was in the second quarter. They're down a little bit fourth and goal everything in, in football lore would say just take take the points kick the field goal go in the locker room right and they they say let's we're gonna the analytics would say you should go for it on fourth down in that situation and they went for it and they scored a touchdown um so that was awesome and that sort of paved the path for them to for the eagles to win the game but you could imagine an alternative world where they called that same play and it didn't work right and then everybody's saying like how dumb the the Eagles coaches were right now. No, that was the right decision. That was the right process. That was the that was the play that gave them the highest probability of winning. And uh, you know that's I, I understand that sort of if it doesn't work out, you may look uh, foolish. But that's that's really what you should be doing is is making sure that you're doing things that give you the best chance to win without worrying too much about um, those specific outcomes. One of the um, focus on process concepts comes from uh your theory on skill and luck and i think it's really uh you know i don't know if it's too long of a conversation or if you can give some of the listeners uh, a little bit of detail about some of your writings but but i think it really makes a lot of sense when you start looking at those do you mind talking about that for a second no not at all jamie thanks for thank thanks for that little plug i mean i wrote a book a few years ago called the success equation which was really about untangling skill and luck and you know for someone who's interested in business or investing or certainly sports it's an incredibly fascinating topic and you know when you're evaluating athletes it's an interesting question to say how much of what their success looks like is because of skill and how much is because of because of luck um so a couple of points on that um one is that when there's a lot of luck in your process, uh, in, in the outcomes part of me, you should always focus on the process, right? And so again, an example of that would be something like playing blackjack, right? We know, we know the blackjack has a lot of luck just because of the, the turn of the card. And there's, you should follow blackjack strategy, basic blackjack strategy to, to, to give yourself the highest probability of success. So it turns out if you decompose even statistics in most sports, one really easy example is, is baseball. So in baseball, certain statistics are what, what statisticians call highly reliable. So in other words, you know, if I, I know your good example, strikeout rate. I know if a guy striked out his strikeout rate one year, I know it's going to be pretty, pretty well what it's going to be the next year. Whereas other statistics have a lot more randomness in them. For example, uh, in play doubles and singles. So you put the ball in play, you get a double or a single. That turns out to have, have a lot of randomness. Now, there's one concept I will share. Hopefully, I can do it quickly that I think is super interesting in the context of college lacrosse. It's an idea that I call the paradox of skill. And here's the basic idea. It says an outcome, when, when, when outcomes are a combination of both luck and skill, which is probably most things in life, right? It can be the case that as skill gets better, luck becomes more important, which doesn't seem to make any sense on the surface, right? And so the way to think about that is to think about skill in two dimensions. One is absolute skill. And I think if we look around the world, and I th I'm sure you would agree with me, you know, the level of absolute skill has never been higher. I just look, by the way, at college and, and even high school lacrosse players versus a generation or two before. I marvel at their ability. Amazing, amazing athletes, amazing players, amazing skills, really impressive and fun to watch. Um, but, you know, you look at any sport or anything that's measured versus the clock 
aquifer, you see that. But the second dimension of skill is the key one to focus on, that is relative skill. And that's the difference between the very best participants and the average participants. And what we've seen in field after field is that that has shrunk over time. So the players are more uniformly good. Now you say, what's behind that? There are a couple things you could think of. One is geography. Think about lacrosse players. Where did all lacrosse players come from 30 years ago? Well, you could draw a circle around Long Island. You could draw a circle around Baltimore. You draw a circle around you know, upstate New York, maybe a little bit of New England, and basically you had, you know, whatever, 90% of the players or something like that, right? Or a couple Canadians come down, but for the most part, that was it. Now, as you know, and you know much better than me, you know, any coach has got to recruit. There are amazing lacrosse players all over the country. And, you know, great players coming out of the state of Oregon or California or Texas and Florida in, in ways that we certainly wouldn't, 30 years ago, wouldn't have been even conceivable to try to recruit in those places. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is, they're all being trained better, right? They're, they're, they're getting better coaching instruction. They get to hang out with guys like Jamie Monroe and, and they're just being, they're learning to play the game better. And so that uniformity of skill means that that increases parity in sports. And by the way, we see that in professional leagues, um, greater parity. There's been a grinding toward parity in all professional leagues. Um, you know, things like salary caps contribute to it, but that's, it's, it's not even salary caps. NHL, great example. NHL used to be, as you know, basically Canadians, right? 80% Canadians, very few Americans. And, and now it's a completely global league. Uh, professional soccer, same thing, right? So uh, this idea of the paradox skill. So that's a really interesting thing is I think one should expect that, that parity will continue to grow in college lacrosse. Um, so, you know, we, we have a couple perennial programs that are sort of the, the aristocracy of lacrosse. And, and I suspect those guys will still be really good programs. But it is the emergence of teams that, that hadn't been historically as good. And, you know, you've seen it. The Big Ten teams have been amazing how well they've progressed in a very short period of time. Denver, right, last 20 years has been really super impressive, and a large part because of your efforts. So that's a, that, I think that's another uh, aspect of the luck and skill stuff that's, that's cool. It's really interesting. Um, the Paradox article is an incredible one. I'll put it up. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure. Do you, have, do you have a website that people can go and check out your <laughs> – your books? Yeah, probably just my michaelmobison.com. So it's a lot of, lot of letters, but that's, uh, if we, we, we could post that probably michaelmobison.com has got a lot of the stuff on the different books I've written and, and some of these articles. And I think that article's uh, up on that site. So let's talk, let's, let's finish up if you don't mind by discussing just what, you know, if you're a, if you're a parent and you want to drop knowledge on your kids, or if you're a kid, what, what, what's your advantage, what's your advice to players? Yeah, and I don't think there's anything that's out of the ordinary. Um, the the one thing is to, I mean, first of all, you want to have fun with all this, right? And and I, you know, I I guess uh, I grew up. I think you were in the same situation. I grew up as a as a, as a three sport athlete. Um, I to this day very much feel that my experience, for example, as a hockey player, helped me a lot playing lacrosse and vice versa. And so that's one thing is just let's, let's not overdo this. Let's be multi-sport athletes. Let's work different parts of our muscles. Let's learn different dimensions of games. And I think that's really super helpful. Um, the second thing is to practice what works. And, you know, I think that um, sometimes there are certain things in lacrosse and other sports that look really impressive that may not be so effective in game situations. And so to really think about what is, what, what is effective and, um, so practice what works and, and try to work on those. Um, I also think learn, learn, learning about your strengths and weaknesses is really important. Um, all of us as athletes are good, good at certain dimensions and not as good as at other ones. 
Um, I know that uh, often you want to shore up your weaknesses, and I get that to some degree, but often a lot of it is just making sure that you're putting yourself in a position where your strengths are um, highlighted or you can use, you can leverage your strengths. And then maybe the last thing I'll say, which has been sort of a, a thread throughout our conversation today is, is recognition that lots of little things add up as, as, a, as an athlete and um, as a player. And, um, you know, you want to be engaged mentally and you want to be engaged physically and um, you want to minimize mistakes that you shouldn't be making and recognize that lots of little things you do, whether it's your off ball posture, whether it's your ability to pick up a ground ball, whether it's your, you know, thoughtful clearing pass or low, you know, all those things do add up in, in terms of your team's success or failure and to tend to those things, right? Um, sometimes we celebrate the guy that does sort of the high risk kind of dumb play that works out <laughs> and we don't celebrate the guy who's sort of playing with himself, understands what he's good at and contributes a lot of little things to the success of the team. And uh, just trying to place a spotlight on that kind of contribution is also, I think, really important. And, and super as a player, just to be aware that that's, that is valuable and should be valued. Yeah, so what works? You know, box lacrosse works. That's one thing. You know, we talked a little bit about the, um, you know, I think you and I in our, our, our prep conversation, we talked about the Native Americans and this incredibly high percentage of world-class players that grow up playing almost – exclusively pickup games and I think that's something that is lost on our uh, community uh, you know when you talk about learning your strengths and really understanding your game um, there's probably no other way to do it other than film because I just don't believe that memory actually tells you the right story that's a topic on a lot of my podcasts with folks because I do a lot of work with film a lot of player analysis and stuff but um, I think, you know, you have to use film and get someone to help you because you're right. I mean, I, I've coached every level from little kids all the way to pros and the best players are consistently just putting themselves in better positions than, than everybody else and just remembering to use some of their, some of their skills. And this stuff really does all add up. Um, Mike, I can't thank you enough for being on this uh, podcast with me. This was incredibly interesting for me. I love chatting with you and hearing your opinions and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime and hearing your updates. Um, one more time, where's your, um, what, what, your website is Michael Michaelmobison.com. Yeah, michaelmobison.com. And thanks, Jamie. This is awesome. I, I think it's really, um, it is super interesting. I really enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, sport, lacrosse is such a fabulous, beautiful, fun sport. And, uh, you know, there are things we can do to, to even be better at it. So that's, it's, it's a super exciting time. Never been more exciting time to be involved with a game, uh, a game that we all love and a game that's amazing. So uh, really excited to be able to talk about this stuff. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 Video Assessment Tool.